This episode of the Italian Wine Podcast is brought to you by the new book, Sangiovese, Lambrusco, and Other Vine Stories. Researchers Attilio Scienza and Serena Mazio explore the origin and ancestry of European grape varieties in a tale of migration, conquest, exploration, and cross-cultural exchange. Hardback available on Amazon in Europe, Kindle version available worldwide. Find out more at italianwinebook.com. Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Monty Walden. My guest today is Bruce Sanderson. Bruce is a wine writer. He joined the Wine Spectator in 1983 and has been senior editor since 1999. Welcome. Thank you, Monty. I'm not that old, though. I, I joined in 93. Oh, what did I say? 1893. <laughs> I did that for 11 years. I, my first job as a model was in Sydney, Australia, while I was doing research for my master's degree. So modeling? That time I was, uh, I was playing the role of a young businessman. So you were modeling suits and shirts and ties? And yeah, it was actually a business that, uh, that an American man had started, and we were sitting around the table. I was the young businessman. There was an older businessman, and then there was a, an executive assistant, which was his business. He was, uh, he was hiring executive assistants for traveling business people. Okay. Was that well paid? At the time, as a, as a student, uh, yeah, I thought it was great. You know, we sat around, we had lunch, we drank a bottle of wine, and then he gave me 50 bucks. And I said, hey, I could do this. And so how long did you do that job for? Well, that was one specific job. And then uh, when I left Australia, I started getting involved in the business. And it really wasn't until I moved to Toronto in uh, 1981 that I started doing it full-time. Mm-hmm. And then the wine? Wine, the wine, I was always interested in wine, probably from the time I was in high school as a teenager. I read a book that uh, someone had had written. Basically, it was a they had tasted all the brands that were available in the Liquor Control Board of Ontario. And I thought it was fascinating. And I thought, wow, you know, that's really interesting to taste all these wines and to describe them. And then it was a, maybe a little bit of a, a James Bond fantasy, too, that, you know, if I knew about wine, it would make me a little more cultured. And, you know, the, the women would be interested, especially when I, by the time I got to university. So it was a little bit of both. And then um, my modeling career took me to Europe, first to Germany, but also to Italy and France. And I was able to see see the wine culture more closely, the European wine culture. And uh, in 1987, I also did the German Wine Academy tour. So we visited five wine regions. We visited wineries. And that piqued my interest even more. Uh, When I returned to Toronto, I started reading as much as I could about it. And then I moved to New York in uh, 1990 to New York City and immediately got involved in the International Wine Center as a teaching assistant. There we would set up tastings 
and clean up after tastings, but I got to sit in on some great tastings. You know, we would do, a winemaker would come in, present his wines, uh, or someone like uh, Clive Coates, Andre Chelichev, who I met. Uh, he was he was in his 90s by that point, and a number of, of winery owners and winemakers. So it was a great opportunity to taste wine and learn about wine. I also started working part-time with a company called Burgundy Wine Company. They imported uh, Burgundy, obviously, and Rhone Valley wines in the beginning. And uh, in 1991 and 1992, I also worked part-time at Windows on the World. Which is, what was that? Windows on the World was at the top of the World Trade Center, which unfortunately uh, is no longer. Um, it, uh, they had a, a large restaurant, uh, including the Cellar in the Sky, which was um, a tasting menu with set wines. And uh, I worked first in the wine room, giving out wines to, to the waiters and captains. And then I worked for about a year and a half part-time on the floor as a sommelier. So you've got an interesting background. So you're individual, but you, you can work well in a team. I would say that. Um, you know, I, I played... Don't be modest. I played sports. When I was growing up, mostly ice hockey, so um, obviously, you know, a team sport, definitely. So uh, that was that. So you got sort of face-to-face experience of public enjoying or otherwise wine and how they drink it and what what their comments are. How did you then transfer into wine writing as a full-time occupation? I decided that after three years working in the business part-time, and I still loved wine, in fact, I loved it even more. You know, the writing was on the wall. My wine resume was growing faster than my acting resume. So it was time to look for something full-time. The opportunity presented itself at Wine Spectator. They were looking for a tasting coordinator. I was obviously very interested in tasting wines, and um, so I applied for the job. Uh, I didn't hear anything for about three months. Then one day I got a call, and the uh, managing editor at the time said, uh, look, we had to put it on the back burner because we were redesigning the, the magazine, but if you're still interested, I'd like you to come in for an interview. So I did called me a, the next day or a day later and said, uh, Marvin would like to meet you. Marvin Shankin, the the owner and publisher, editor of, uh, of Wine Spectator. Were you nervous? Yeah, I was a little nervous. You know, I'd, he- I'd heard about uh, Marvin's reputation. Strong character. Strong character, shoots from the hip. So I went in and uh, I remember very well, uh, he said, well, you know, you're, uh, you're a model, you're an actor. What's to say that uh, you don't get a call for an audition, you get a part in a movie and you're, and you're gonna walk away, you're just gonna leave. And I said, well, I'm not gonna do that because I'm committed, this is what I want. And uh, so the next day they offered me the job. Yeah, so it was a definitive, change in your in your life trajectory absolutely and it started out my my first title was tasting coordinator and uh, the the editorial offices of wine spectator had recently moved from San Francisco to New York. They had never tasted in New York, so my mandate was to set up the tasting program, which was great for me because that was really my focus. And I had actually gotten involved in the Master Wine program at about the same time, at the beginning of 1993. And in 94, I sat the exam for the first time and I passed the tasting portion of it. So I think, you know, it validated the fact that I was the right guy for the job and also that I should be a taster, an official taster. So when you say a tasting coordinator, you know, 
I was thinking, right, so basically you're calling up wineries, we're doing a, a, a Sonoma Pinot Noir tasting, you contact the wineries that make it and say, please send us three or four or six bottles, this is the address, thank you very much. Pretty much. Yeah. And from doing a, quote, menial task, which just requires some organizational skills, you have become one of the most well-known, respected writers in the industry. So how did how did you, was it latent talent, was it just sheer luck? Hard work. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think, be modest. I, I know you're Canadian. I know. I know. I know. You guys are very general, huge generalization, but modesty. But don't don't hide your talent under a bushel. We want to hear about exactly the steps and how did you get there. I think it's all of those things, a combination. Certainly, look. I knew I was a good taster. I had confidence in my palate. That's the, important, I think, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Have the courage of your convictions? Absolutely. There, there was no, there was no doubt about it. I knew, and I was learning. I'd learned a tremendous amount in the in the MW program, and uh, I had already started visiting wine regions and you know trying to understand viticulture, vinification, aging, etc. So you know, just my feeling was that I needed to have that that base of knowledge to really understand grape growing and winemaking and therefore be a, a responsible and successful critic. It's interesting you use the word responsible. Um, what, do, what do you mean by that? People make their livelihoods growing grapes, making wine. So it's a big responsibility when we give a, a positive score or a negative score. You know, a negative score can really impact a winery's uh, position in the market, uh, whether people decide to buy their wine or not. So, so it's, a, it, it's a big responsibility. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, you know, I think probably one of the... I mean, would you say that there's, with, with sort of official quotes, publications like Wine Spectator or Decanter, that there is perhaps more of a, not saying respectful, but um, a thoughtful approach in what we write as content, which is what pays our bills, compared to, say, a blogger, or is that an unjust comparison? I think there's definitely a level of professionalism if you if you're involved with a, a publication such as Wine Spectator, you need to have that level of professionalism. I think uh, it, it, it's. I mean, that's how I act myself, and I also not only are we reviewing wines for our readers and writing about wines for our readers, but I'm also representing the company. So I think at the very minimum, you have to have a certain amount of professionalism. So in terms of your diary, I imagine you travel a lot, yeah? A fair bit. I try to visit uh, each wine region that I cover, Burgundy, Piedmont, and Tuscany, once a year, and sometimes there could be an additional trip to Europe. So in terms of scheduling, are you doing all the nitty-gritty, or do you have, you say, listen, I need to be in in Burgundy on week three in August, whatever it is, and you've got someone at least booking your flights and making sure that you're going to get there, you're going to have somewhere to sleep. Uh, Is it it that joined up, or is it you really doing everything yourself? No, I, I do everything myself. Really? Yeah. Yeah, we all do. Uh, See, we'd n- I never would have guessed that. I thought there was like a team of 50 people just organizing your, your train tickets and your flights. And the, I wish there were. You know, whether he likes black slippers in the plane or, or, or blue ones, and he sits on the left-hand side of the plane or not. But you're down to earth, yeah? Occasionally, if we're doing certain uh, events um, and maybe somebody else is booking your flight, yes, yeah. then uh, you, know, you, you give them some instruction. I like an aisle seat or whatever, exit seat, if that's possible. But generally, we, we book our own itinerary. We book our own flights, hotels. I will often ask people if I'm going to a region and I'm not sure, you know, can you recommend a good hotel if I don't know the area? By now, 
you know you, you kind of have a list of places that you like to stay and you like to eat um, but it I think as far as the winery itinerary uh, to you know the visits that we do it's important that that we do that ourselves because you know you can you can plan your program time-wise but also when I'm in a wine region I I like to visit uh, new people every opportunity I can. I try to revisit people that I haven't seen for two or three or four years. And uh, in, in the case of, of Burgundy, for example, I, I kind of alternate between uh, one year, it will be uh, Jouin, Bouchard, Favely, and the next year it's uh, uh, Jadot, Louis Latour, um, so that you're covering the, the major merchant houses on a regular basis. Your beat, as they say, is um, in terms of Italy, you are looking at Piemonte and Tuscany? Correct. Is that right? Yes. So how do you divide your time up between those two pretty big regions? Yeah, it's, well, in terms of travel, I visit uh, I visit each one once a year. So it could be that uh, around Vin Italy, I'm spending some time in Tuscany or Piedmont. And it could be, you know, later in the fall, this time of year, you know, I'm going to be in the other region. So and in terms of tasting... Nothing to do with the availability of truffles at this time of year, then? Uh, actually, I need to change that, Monty, because I was going to Piedmont in November, and, and somehow they got flip-flopped, and, you uh, know, I think, you know, I gotta, I've got to rectify that. But in terms of tasting, we have certain tasting report uh, schedules. So they fall certain times of the year. And obviously, we, we try to, uh, you know, we organize our tasting so we make sure we've, we've covered the wines. But I like to have a, a balanced presentation of different wine regions in each buying guide. So if I'm tasting three or four times a week in the office, then I would ideally... I would split that between Burgundy, Piedmont, and Tuscany so that uh, in each issue there's a section on Burgundy, Piedmont, and Tuscany. Um, yeah, keep the so plate spinning on yeah, each one. Yeah, exactly. Our tasting reports are really a wrap-up of a, a year's worth of tastings. So they may occur in a specific issue, but we're tasting those wines year-round. So what are the trends that you're seeing? Let's start with uh, Piemonte. You know, Barolo is, is extremely popular right now in, uh, in the U.S., and I would say Barbaresco as well, and Nebbiolo in general. I think uh, Dolcetto is, is suffering a little bit, Barbera. It's unfortunate because both those wines are, are, are good wines. Why do you think they're suffering? Is it quality that's not always consistent? Or no, I think it's... it's, it's no sex appeal? It, because there's such a demand for Nebbiolo, a lot of producers are pulling up Dolcetto and Barbera vines, and planting Nebbiolo, which, you know, I get it. Economically, it makes sense, but it also means that sometimes Nebbiolo isn't planted in the best spot. Yeah. So, and I think, uh, you know, it's it's important that uh, that you have wines like Dolcetto and Barbera for kind of everyday wines. I mean, yeah. n- not everybody is drinking Barolo or Barbaresco every night. Do you get, do you get, I mean, some of us say, oh, it's all the fault of the wine spectator that, that these Piemontese producers are ripping out their Barbera because these these guys in America they don't understand it. They're giving these Nebbiolo 100 point scores. It's all their fault. How do you react to that? Well, it's true that if we give high scores, it's going to drive market trends, going to drive consumption trends, and and certainly production trends. But we try to cover all the wines, all the regions as much as we can. You know, it just it's the reality is that when I taste uh, Piedmont wines. By far the majority of wines are Barolo. 
you know that's that's just the that's just a numbers game but I, I talk about Dolcetto, I talk about Barbera, and we, we also do a number of um, features on our website, which we call Tasting Highlights, and there we focus on values a lot. So obviously you're not going to find too much Barbaresco or Barolo in those because they tend to be more expensive, and that's an opportunity to promote Dolcetto, Nebbiolo, Barbera, which you know our readers can find, let's say for you know fifteen to twenty-five, thirty dollars. Yeah. What about trends in Montalcino? Well, I think uh, everybody's anticipating the 2015 vintage. Uh, obviously, 2014 was it was challenging, and uh, producers took a number of different strategies in terms of the U.S. market. Could, if they bottled a 14 at all. Yeah, pretty wet, yeah. So there, there's a lot of anticipation for 2015. I think, uh, you know, Brunello is definitely king, Rosso. But I, I, I'm seeing better and better Rossos because I, I think Rosso is a good introduction, not only to the region, but also for a producer because of the price point. The problem I have with, with some Rossos is that they're a little bit too austere and maybe a little bit too, too tannic. And I think if they had, had a bit more fruit and balance, you know, that would give them greater appeal and wider appeal among consumers because it's a wine that you can you can drink immediately on release. Yeah, I mean, I think um, quality generally for the Rossa di Montagino has improved. There are still some some stragglers, though, and in some ways they kind of, I think, subliminally think, well, you know, nobody really cares about Rosso. It doesn't really get much marketing. It's pretty much ignored, and they throw everything into the Brunello, um, which I, I kind of think is um, a mistake. It's like it's like serving a really great dish with crappy bread, yeah, or, or, or <laughs> butter that's just a right. not not great. It, it just it just it just kind of lowers the tone a bit yeah. unnecessarily. Or so. the or the appetizers aren't very interesting. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. you think well, it kind of sets you off on a bad uh, yeah. a bad track. We'll get right back to the Italian Wine Podcast after a quick reminder that this episode is made possible by the book Sangiovese, Lambrusco, and Other Vine Stories, available on Amazon in Europe and Kindle Worldwide. So how do you switch off? I mean, you've got, you're traveling, you're booking your tickets, you've also got to write. It's not like you just, yeah. articles appear out of magic. There's a lot of, and I imagine there's a lot of editing as well. It's very precise what's written in the Wine Spectator because it's got massive responsibility in terms of its readership to get things right. How do you switch off? I listen to a lot of music. I love music and I love different kinds of music, uh, jazz, rock, country, folk, or, or, you know, what I might call alt country, blues, a little bit of classical, not so much opera, although I've, I've, I've tried to learn a little bit about it. Where does that musical side come from? Your family? I, th- yeah, I think it comes from my family. There was always music growing up, always instruments in the house. You know, my, my dad played guitar a little bit, and uh, so I started playing guitar when I was young, and I recently bought myself a guitar, uh, which, you know, to play more, to learn more, and, uh, and again, you know, for, for relaxation. What, what brand? Uh, I bought a Martin HD28. So it's a very uh, iconic brand from uh, made in uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, they've been around since 1833. So is that an acoustic guitar? It's an acoustic guitar, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so these are, these... I, I live in a New York apartment, so I don't think my neighbors would appreciate, yeah. uh, you know, Fender Stratocaster yeah. waking, Jimi... waking them up. You know? Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one way of, of switching off. Anything else? You like walking, hiking, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I don't play as often as I would like to, but I enjoy playing golf. 
golf, and uh, you know it, it it gets you outside in, in the in the fresh air, and usually um, you know in a nice setting with some birds and other wild animals. And uh, yeah, we we uh, my wife and I um, have a, a vacation home that uh, that we like to go to. That? Uh, it's in Cape May Point, Where's New that? Jersey, southern okay. tip of New Jersey. So it's a it's a nice area for walking. For um, you know, there's a beautiful beach there, so you can walk on the beach. How did you two meet? We met actually uh, at the wine experience, uh, the New York Wine Experience in 2001. A mutual friend said, "Oh, you know, you've you've got to you've got to meet Sean. She's uh, she's from Canada, you know." So, so that was it. Yeah. So yeah, so we met, but uh, but we it was several years later that we actually got together. So well, you're a bit of a slow starter. Well, no, we were. I, I was I was in another marriage at the time, and she was involved in another relationship. So uh, you became friends, and then yeah, I mean she's she's worked the event for 20 years now as a sommelier in the back room, opening the wines, checking all the wines, making sure they're sound before they they go out. Is she a to, good taster? She's an excellent taster. Does she uh, call you out sometimes? All the time. Go on, go on, give us some examples. Go on. All the time. She is particularly sensitive to cork taint, and okay. uh, you know I I usually uh, pick up on a cork bottle, but sometimes if it's if it's marginal, uh, she'll be she'll be the first to jump on that, and uh, you know when I try to uh, I try to get her to uh, to you know to to do a blind tasting or kind of an A B comparison, she's like nah, come on, I don't want to work, you know. So, does she ever slam you on the point score? So how did you give that an eighty seven? It's a definite ninety three. Not too often, but yeah. sometimes you know we'll we'll she'll say oh I don't know I think it was maybe a little better than that or. Not she played devil's advocate sometimes to wind you up, just so that you you know to get you to expound on your reasoning all the time. Well, that's good though, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, because yeah. she's coming at it from like a normal consumer perspective, whereas you're a kind yeah. of wine geek mm-hmm. professional, you know, full time head in the kind of sand almost. Yeah. It must be nice to have that kind of feedback. Yeah, it is. It is because uh, it, it keeps me honest and uh, and also. But that comes uh, through in your writing. Become, oh, just as soon as I met you, just I, I knew what I, I can't prejudge, but just looking at your backstory as well, you're down to earth. It's not just because you're Canadian; it's right. that that is probably part of it as well. But you are a down to earth guy. I mean, you're in a, you're in an incredibly high profile position <laughs> with a ridiculous amount of responsibility. Yeah. And anything that you know, his shirt was dirty, or his, his his trousers weren't pressed properly, or he turned up late, or he got the name of my name wrong. Uh, you know, all of these things are basic human mistakes that can happen. And because you're working for such a high-profile magazine, the only thing you're going to get most of the time is to be shot at. No one is. Yeah. Often you're not going to get bouquets of, of roses and chocolates landing. Sometimes maybe, but it's everything to lose and nothing to gain. So how do you cope with that pressure? I take my job very seriously. I work very hard at it. Uh, and you had asked me earlier about the jump to writing. You know, I, I didn't come from a writing background. I came more from a tasting background. I, so I always say I, I kind of got in through the back door as tasting coordinator and then a few years later tasting director. But I had written a lot of papers in university. That's sort of a Canadian way in, in terms of education. So I had, you know, I was writing more 
let's say, academic papers, you know, ma- making an argument or whatever. But still, so, it requires in-depth research, yes. anal- analytical yeah. skills, and then presentational skills, and making sure that what you write is what you mean, and there aren't any mistakes, and there's no ambiguity. Yeah. I prefer to do too much research, have too much information, and then try to distill it down. And I'll say it's, it's a process. I enjoy it very much. I'm sure my writing has improved. Um, at least that's the feedback I get from my editors. And they're also very important in, uh, you know, putting you on the right track, in uh, organizing your thoughts on paper. You know, it's amazing. Sometimes you write something down and you think, wow, that's brilliant. And then <laughs> you get some comments. And it's like, hmm, maybe it's not so brilliant. But but it's an interesting process and it's, um, it's one that I enjoy very much, uh, constantly trying to improve your writing. And, and, you know, sometimes when I'm working on a, on a big story and I'm just I'm interviewing someone or, you know, ideas will come up and, you know, this is how I want to structure the story, you know, or maybe I'll do this or this could be a good lead. So it's been, a, it's been an interesting process. Mm, it's nice to hear that you, you describe your own quotes fallibility and the fact that it's not you don't just sit down, tap out, tap out the article, send it off and Marvin says, yeah, that's great. It's, no, it, it's it, a process, isn't it's it? Definitely, it's definitely it's definitely it definitely is, and uh, and and not only do, will I have a, a an editor for the ideas and the the flow of the writing, but then then you'll get the copy editors who do the line editing, and uh, you know sometimes they'll just say, well, I'm not quite sure what you're saying here. Maybe we rephrase it; it'll be more clear. So, but you know, I, I mean, I take my job very seriously, and I work very hard, but I try not to take myself too seriously, and. That you know, look what I say is 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 the gospel, and that's it. You know, I think in in terms of the in terms of the tasting process, that the the one of the big variables in the equation is the taster. I know some days I'm tasting better than others, but the fact that that we do it regularly, it's like an athlete. You're training constantly. You're always trying to improve yourself, and uh, so. You know, we're on a, on a on a bad day. We're still good. Yeah, I mean, you're only as good as your last race, right? That's, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's yeah. nice to hear that. I mean, you know, the wine sweat data is so well known, and it's it's just such an easy target to have a pop at. And um, you know, I have to be honest, I'm quite ner- not nervous interviewing you, but you know, you are very influential guy in the wine industry I and mean, you really are and um, you know I thought well, do I need to tread on eggshells or anything like that he's, he's Canadian <laughs> he's going to be absolutely fine and in fact that is exactly what's happened um, it's been really enjoyable listening to you and um, the ins and outs of um, your job and your very interesting backstory and the fact that your that your personal life has sort of informed in a way your professional life and you've got a hinterland as well which is really important with your music and and other things and I think you know you're the kind of guy I'd like, love to hang out with go and have a coffee and all the rest and just chat about wine without anybody getting an ego out at all um, and exchanging opinions with um, with respect and um, and coherence as well that's really really important so it's been a real treat to meet you honestly really, thank you Monty really, yeah I've got to, uh, you know why would Monty be honest he writes with decantral yeah I, I was a little bit never do I need to tread on eggshells with this guy and uh, the German thing what was all that about and the model I thought <laughs> was it those kind of movies that he was doing then do I ask about that or do I just shut up and just, just hope he tells me or doesn't tell me so anyway I've, I've really enjoyed it and um, next time you're in town if you're in Montalcino we'll, we'll exchange contacts um, it'd be great to just have a coffee and have a chit chat um, about Montalcino because I spend a lot of time there my partner's from there my kids at school there so 
It's changed a lot. It's improved a lot. I don't know if you picked that up, but yeah. the viticulture is much, compared to 10, 15 years ago, the viticulture is much, much better. The winemaking is much better. Just give us yes. a comment on Montalcino before we, before yeah. we leave you. Oh, no, I, I, I agree with you uh, completely. Um, in, in fact, I, I had a workshop yesterday with, um, with about uh, 10 young producers from Tuscany, but I would say that most of them were from Montalcino. And uh, I, I really like the direction it's heading there. You know, they're, they're bringing a lot of energy. They're bringing fresh ideas. Um, yeah, they're 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 really working hard in the vineyards, and I think you know they're looking at their estates in a different way than than their fathers and grandfathers did. Um, you know, they're doing a lot of uh, examination of, of of the different parcels and subzones, and uh, you know, microvinifications and 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 buying smaller uh, fermentation tanks and and aging vessels so that they can look at all those differences. and And I really think that uh, I really think that's a good direction for them to go in because they've got a story to tell yeah. and and I think um, consumers in the US want to hear about that they they want to know what's new you know and that it's not just a, a region that's resting on its laurels that it's popular and 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 there's they're not moving ahead so yeah, yeah no, there's definitely been definite progress great that you've picked that up yeah, yeah well let's hook up thank you thanks I, Bruce I, I, I've enjoyed it very much I've enjoyed it as well I'm, I'm really thrilled and um, I want to thank you for your time it's been great thank you thank you Martin thanks. Listen to all of our pods on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Himalaya FM and on ItalianWinePodcast.com. Don't forget to send your tweets to at Podcast.